0: Okay, I hope you had a pleasant uh, Benos Manim. Uh, do you guys have a Tuba Seder on uh, Thursday? I'm coming
1: to
0: you. Oh, coming to me, okay. Yeah. That's Wednesday night, yeah. okay. righty. anyway, um, so uh, we more or less, the so last uh, week or two weeks ago, we went over the kasuva and uh, I don't want to review everything, just to go over the, uh, just to enumerate, not go over really, enumerate the uh, different parts of the Kisuvah. Uh, The first is the obligation of the husband to support his wife, and that's very, very important. A husband is obligated halachically to support his wife in the manner to which she is accustomed. Uh, If you find in religious couples that the wife is the primary breadwinner, that is because she is willing to waive her right. This is called mechilah. Uh, So she can do that, uh, but the point is, it's her right, it's up to her. So at any point, as as strange as it might be, at any point she could tell her husband, you have to support me, I'm not going to do this anymore, and the husband is obligated to support his wife. That's category number one. Category number two is a financial obligation that the husband has to pay in the event that uh, he divorces his wife or he dies. We'll call this the uh, divorce or death benefit of the ketubah. Uh, and here uh, it is expressed in an ancient currency that's no longer around anymore. Uh, it is 200 zuz. Zuzim. Uh, you know from Chad Gajah that you can get a goat for two zuzim. So 200 zuzim could buy 100 goats, apparently, based on that idea. Uh, as I indicated, uh, a, a 200 zuz, is, uh, in modern measurements, is the value of 1,000 grams of silver. So this is a very interesting point. Again, again, just to to repeat the point, without going over Barichas, when we convert ancient money to modern money, halakhically, we don't convert it directly from zuzim to dollars. For example, if you were to ask me, well, how many zuzim is a dollar? Or how many dollars is a Zuz? That's not what you do. Rather, you do it based on the metallic weight of the unit. So a Zuz was a coin that had a certain amount of silver in it. So 200 Zuz is 1,000 grams. That means a Zuz had 5 grams of silver. Which means you can't really say that 200 Zuz is worth a certain dollar amount. Rather, 200 Zuz is the value of 1,000 grams of silver. Now, that depends on the silver markets, which means some years it may be more money. Some years it's going to be less money. So you can't really, you understand this is a very fundamental idea, you can't really make a direct comparison how many dollars is a You rather have to convert it into its metallic weight and then it will fluctuate. Which means, practically, if we're talking about how much money will a woman get in the ksuba, you can't even say how much money a woman would get under a ksuba. Uh, she will get the value of 1,000 grams of silver. Now, just for comparison purposes, uh, there are times that a gram of silver can be as high as $500, and there are times it can be a low, as low as $10. <laughs> in other words, silver actually, and I, I happen not to have the numbers in front of me right now. Uh, but silver happens to be a commodity that fluctuates greatly in value over over different, over different uh, times. Uh, now, I did mention there's an alternative understanding of the 200 Zuz, and that is the 200 Zuz is the amount of money that would support a woman, food, clothing, shelter, rent, utilities, for one year. So in the time of Chazal, 200 Zuz equals one year of support. So some posts say that you no longer translate the Zuzim into dollars or metallic weight, but it simply means whatever the amount of money would be that is a reasonable support for one year. And that, of course, would also be a fluctuating amount. Uh, that very much depends on what part of the country the woman is going to be living in. Right, Different parts of the country uh, have different costs of living. Uh, If she's going to be living in Manhattan, it's going to be a high amount. If she'll be living in South Dakota, it'll be a low amount. Apparently, it's her choice. In other words, the husband cannot say, you live in South Dakota, so I'll pay you less. Rather, she can decide where she wants to live and his obligation. So this is a big machlokas, actually. In other words, is the k'suva based on this metallic conversion, a 1,000 grams of silver... Or is it based on the concept of how much uh, support would a woman need for one year? Uh, it seems to be the, the primary halakha consensus is the first way that it's a 1,000 grams of silver. Now, this is a death benefit. I'm sorry, this is a benefit that's payable if either the husband divorces her or uh, he dies, right? So she has this right to the kesuva, which is 200 zuz. That is the second part of the k'suva. The third part of the k'suva is uh, her right to be reimbursed for property that she brought into the marriage. So if she brought into the marriage whatever it was, a car, a computer, a house, an apartment building, bank accounts, whatever it would be, uh, the husband is obligated to reimburse her so this is a really, really a prenuptial agreement. The husband's have to reimburse her for the property she brought in. Now, here is where it also gets peculiar. In theory, that should depend on what she brought in. In other words, in theory, there ought to be a professional assessment <coughs> of what did she bring into the marriage and therefore what does she pull out of the marriage. So for some women, it might be very little. For some women, it might be a lot, right? It might be millions and millions of dollars theoretically. However, the Ashkenazic Minug has been for hundreds and hundreds of years that even with respect to getting back the property, we put in a standardized amount. Now, that certainly benefits poor women who didn't bring anything in because it gives them a guarantee. On the other hand, uh, it works against a wealthy woman that brought in a lot of stuff. So it seems to me, it's over although I didn't really see it, that if a woman actually brought in more property than the standard amount of the k'suba, there is absolutely no reason why she can't insist that the k'suba reflect that. In other words, the amounts of the ksuva are kind of negotiated in that, in that way, at least to go up, if not to go down. Now, this is called, the halachic term for this is, for part three is, hachzaras nidunya the return of the dowry. The return of the dowry, and that is financial reimbursement for the assets that she brought into the k'suva. In theory, it should be a tailor-made, individualized amount. In practice, it is also a defunct currency, and the currency is called 100 zakuk. So don't confuse it. The Death and divorce basic benefit is 200 Zuz. <coughs> the dowry is 100 Zakkuk. 100, not 200, 100 Zakkuk. Now, the meaning of zakuk is even more obscure than the meaning of Zuz. And the reason is simple. Zuz is a Talmudic term for a currency that existed during the Second Temple Period. So the Talmud discusses Zuz. Chagadja discusses Zuz. Zokuk is a totally foreign term that does not appear anywhere. And actually, Zokuk is simply a Hebrew translation for a medieval coin that was common in Germany and Poland in the Middle Ages. And people debate what that coin is and therefore what is a Zokuk? So, once again, there's a tremendous diversity of opinion here. Some say the relationship of a zakuk to a zuz is four to one, meaning one zakuk is four times the silver content of a zuz. Others make it ten times, and others make it fifty times. So, remember, therefore, if the ratios of zakuk to zuz is four, or ten, or fifty, then when you multiply it, it will be, uh, well, because it's 200 zuz versus 100 zakuk, so uh, if it's four times a ratio, it'll be double the, the k'suva. If it's ten times, it'll be five times the k'suva. If it's 50 times, it will be 25. Now, you, you get the, the math there. Because um, even though the zakuk is much more than the zuz, but it's only 100 as opposed to 200. So... The ratio of 4 will, will, will cut down to 2. The ratio of 10 will cut down to 5. The ratio of uh, 50 will cut down to 25. So, at a maximum, the Aksaras Nadunya will be 25 times the amount of the Ksuba. Now, that's already getting to be somewhat big money because if the Ksuba is 1,000 grams of silver, uh, then it's actually possible that the Nadunya might be as high as 25,000 grams. Of silver, I'm sorry, uh, not twelve thousand five hundred grams of silver, right? Twelve thousand five hundred. So that's already, you know, getting uh, getting big. Um, I'll discuss in a moment. Does anyone ever collect on this? I mean, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll discuss that uh, in a moment. Okay. Uh, so I mentioned the duty to support, the death and divorce benefit of two hundred zuz, the hachzaras nedunya of one hundred zakuk. Uh, And then the third financial benefit is simply called tosefet or tosvos k'suva or tosefes k'suva, however you pronounce your your Hebrew. And uh, that is uh, initially something optional in which a chassan would want to add something extra to the k'suva. Technically, it's not mandatory. He doesn't have to do it at all but it's now become standard. So even though it's voluntary, it's in a regular k'suba. this voluntary thing. And the tosefet is always equal to the nedunya, and that is 100 zakuk. So altogether, therefore, if you express the k'suba in terms of the defunct currencies that are expressed there, the k'suba is 200 zuz plus 200 zakuk. Okay, the two hundred zuz is the basic death or divorce benefit, which is non-negotiable. It's non-reducible. It has to be that amount. That's the one thing that has to be there. Then we have the nadunya, which is one hundred zakuk, which theoretically could be adjusted upward if a woman brought more property in. And then we have a hundred zakuk. Of Tosefes, which once again could be negotiated upward or downward. But as I say, uh, commonly we we keep the Tosefes a a standardized amount. Okay? And once again, uh, just in terms of picturing this, the 200 Zuz is 1,000 grams of silver. And the 100 Zakuk depends on what the ratio of Zakuk to Zuz is. It's either a 4 to 1 which would make it a 2 to 1 in the ksuba, or it's a 10 to 1, which would make it, which would make it a 5 to 1, or it's a 25, uh, I'm sorry, a 50 to 1, which would make it a 25 to 1. Okay? But of course, you actually have 200 zakuk. So actually, at that point, if you just add up all the zakukim, you can just uh, apply the ratio directly. It's 4 <coughs> times the ksuba, 10 times the ksuba, 50 times the ksuba. Okay? <laughs> um... You know, if you would ask me a, a, a question, uh, you know, why, why must aksuva be written in old fashioned money that is not used today? Why don't we write aksuva in terms of shekel, in terms of dollars, in terms of euros, in terms of pounds? Wouldn't that make more sense? Uh, the answer is yes, it would make more sense. And uh, some Sephardic are actually written that way. But, you know, Ashkenazim are creatures of tradition, and since this is the way it's been done for hundreds of years, so we keep the ksuva the way it's done, but certainly it would be kosher. The ksuva would be kosher. Number one, it doesn't have to be written in Aramaic at all. It could be written in English. And number two, uh, the amounts can certainly be converted to contemporary currencies. There is nothing wrong with that, but it's not the custom. And uh, there are a lot of things in Judaism that, you know, we follow the minhagen, uh because there's kind of a slippery slope, fear, you know, you start changing one thing, you know, who knows, you know, what do they say, you know, uh, you change the ksuba, then you're going to have uh, women rabbis and all sorts of horrendous things, you know, etc. So, so the point basically is that we don't, we tend not to change things, even though halachically, halachically, there's actually nothing wrong with it. Uh, the ksuba is a very pliable document. Uh, you have to have the 200 says, but it doesn't have to be called 200 sith if you translate it into the value of a 1,000 grams of silver and put a dollar amount in on a certain date. That would, in fact, be a legitimate <coughs> ksuba. Yeah? Is Tuba, ksuba written in
1: Aramaic because of the tradition taking place from the time that Aramaic was... That yeah, know, yeah. It, because of the like,
0: gemara? No, no. See, this is exactly the point. It's so interesting that Aramaic today, even for knowledgeable Jews... Is, a, is not their natural language, right? It's not... <laughs> right, yeah, right. right. Uh, the point is, though, the ksuba was written in Aramaic because it was so... Imp- Aramaic was the spoken right. language right. of the Babylonian communities and even in the Eretz Israel during the Second Temple. So the Ksuva was written in Aramaic to make it more understandable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, that itself would be a strong argument that a Ksuva today should be for an American in English and for an Israeli in modern Hebrew. In other words, to say we got to keep it in Aramaic because that was the tradition is actually totally illogical because Aramaic was chosen instead of Hebrew because Aramaic was the more, as strange as it was, Aramaic was a more familiar language to the Jews of the Second Temple period, even living in Israel, than was Hebrew. If any of you saw, I did not see it, and I hope you did not see it, but if any of you did see, God forbid, Mel Gibson's movie The Passion uh, about uh, the crucifixion of Yashka, so you may recall that in his quest for authenticity, uh, he actually had it done in a foreign language with English subtitles. The foreign language was Aramaic. was Aramaic. Uh, so if you ask me the question, what language did Yashka speak? Not that we care that much, uh, but it happens to be it probably was Aramaic. That was the common language. You know, Yashka lived during the second temple, uh, towards the end of the second temple. Aramaic, not only in Babel, Aramaic even in Eretz Israel was the more common language. Uh, that's why the Gemara and Megillah mentions you may have even studied this passage, I think, saw so you're learning, McGill, at one point, that um, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, who was the author of the Mishnah, uh, he was very insistent. He didn't like Aramaic. In his house, they only spoke pure Hebrew. But that was rare. So as a result, whenever the students didn't understand a word in Tanakh, they would ask his maidservant, who cleaned up in the house, because in the house they only spoke pure Hebrew, and she knew she would know it, so she actually was a, a source. So Reuven uh, HaNasi was very machbid to only speak Lashon Hakodesh, but that was unusual. That was not the common practice among Jews in Israel. So Aramaic was a much more common, much more common language. Okay. The, yeah.
1: We're always like halacha is like coming from
0: the Shulchan Aruch. Okay. So first of all, there's a whole tractate of the Talmud. Yeah. that is actually called kisuvahs, uh, the laws of the Kesuvah, which are really the laws of marriage, generally. See, Maseches Kiddushin, this is an interesting point people don't understand, there is a tractate called Maseches Kiddushin, mm-hmm. but kidushin is about the marriage ceremony. Yeah. But the marital obligations is in Maseches Kisuvahs, which is a big, big tractate. Now, as is as the case in many areas of halacha, the Talmud has discussions... And gives you many, many different views. It doesn't always give you a final halacha. So then we look at Rambam, Maimonides, and Shulchan Aruch. So yeah, uh, you can find all of these things in Rambam and then in the Shulchan Aruch. And it's all based on the Talmudic discussions in Masech. Well, well, really, I mean, everything is drawn from everywhere, but the primary place is Masechus Ksuvus. Okay? Okay. Um, Now... So I mentioned what? The duty support, the death-divorce benefit, death benefit of 200 zuz, the achsores nadunya of 100 zakuk, the um, tosefet kesuvah of 100 zakok, and the fifth element is the lien. Lien is L-I-E-N. Uh, this is a legal term generally, and uh, this is how the kesuvah is enforced, and that is, The woman can enforce her Kasuva rights when her husband dies or divorces uh, by having any of his property seized and sold and she gets paid out of the proceeds. And this refers to whether it's personal property or, you know, real estate. So whether it's a car, uh, a business, an apartment building, a bank account, uh, she has the right to enforce... The ksuva as a lien, in Hebrew the word is shibut, on his property, and the ksuva mentions even the shirt on his back (laughs) can be seized for the payment of the ksuva. Now you have to understand that the nature of this lien is that even if he sells his property, let's imagine, theoretically, he sold his car and he spent the money And then he died. She can actually repossess the car from the person who bought the car, meaning all property that he sells is subject to her suveline. That's how far it goes. She can actually follow the assets wherever it goes. Uh, Now, what that means is this. In the event that he dies, Anything that was part of his estate when he died, she can go after. But she cannot go after the kid's personal property, meaning like this. uh, A man dies and he owes his wife a ksuva. The lien of the ksuva is on anything that was his property. But if it was never his property... She can't go after it. So let's imagine a guy died without property. But his son happens to be a millionaire. She may be stuck. She might not be able to collect her ksuba because it is not a personal liability. Now now again, if he has property, the son will pay off the ksuba to keep the property. But if there is no property, there is no obligation on the son. Now of course... If this is his mother, he'll probably want to pay. But, but let's assume it's a stepmother. Let's assume it's a second wife. And let's assume, unfortunately, as is often the case, he doesn't have such a great relationship with his stepmother. If he wants the stiffer, he has the right to do so because the lien of the kasuva is limited to the property that the husband owns. It is not a liability of the heirs themselves. Right? The heirs are liable only insofar as they got property uh, that had belonged to the husband at the time. That's the idea of a lien, okay? L-I-E-N, again, it's a, it's a common term in um, general, uh, secular uh, legal systems. A mor- it's like a mortgage. A, mor- a mortgage is a type of lien, actually. So mortgage and lien are kind of interchangeable uh, words. But it, yeah.
1: But if the children inherited everything, yeah. then they would have to pay out of that?
0: Inheritance. Well, well, they, they have a choice. They can pay out of their own money if they want, but, but the point is, she has the right to go after that inheritance, mm. so then they can either let her do that or they can pay her off if they want to keep uh, the country club or, or whatever. Whatever it will be. Okay? So these are the different parts of the uh, Kisuba. And as uh, they say, uh, a Jewish marriage is valid even without a Kisuba, meaning they're married, they need a get, but it is prohibited to live together. Meaning if there's no ketuba, yeah. they are not allowed to live together, and that is very strict. That doesn't only mean they can't have relations, it means they can't have yichud, meaning they're not allowed to be under the, the same roof alone uh, without a, a kasuva. and uh, therefore that does mean that a married woman must always know where her kesuva is, that if the kesuvah is lost, they must immediately uh, go to a rabbi and uh, write what is called a replacement kesuvah. Uh, the term for that is kesuvah de irchasa. Irchasa is Aramaic for lost. There's a special text for what is called a lost uh, kesuvah, and that is absolutely required. Um, I myself, I think I may have mentioned uh, one Purim. Uh, for some reason, my wife began to think that she didn't know where our ksuvah was. So Purim, we had to write a di di'irchasa. And Purim, it's hard to find because you have to have kosher witnesses sign the ksuvah. And when people are drunk, you know, they're not—they're not kosher they're not <laughs> witnesses. So I have to find like the only two people in the city that you know, who are not related. I, mean, I don't get drunk, but I can't sign. I—I I, I can't be a witness. So uh, we had to look for people who were not drunk who could sign the, uh, who could sign the ksuvah. That's called a de deirchasa, right? Very, very important. Again, the wording is a little different. It's a, it's a specialized, a specialized text. Now. The question you might be asking in reality is, um, do women, (coughs) do divorced women collect kasubas? Do they go to basted? Well, let's let's ask it in a few different ways. First of all, let's ask this question. The kasubas seems to be a contract, although it's written in Aramaic. So here's the simple question. Can a woman go to court, let's say in the United States, can a woman go to court and sue her late husband or her husband that divorced her for the Ksuva by simply saying, this is a contract. If this is a contract, you've got to pay the contract. Meaning, is a, can, can a Ksuva be enforced as a contract under civil law, secular law? So here, d- different courts are divided in this. Some courts say, well, no, we're not going to consider the Ksuva a contract. Number one, because it's part of a religious ceremony, and if we enforce the ksuva, we're enforcing religion. And because of the separation of church and state, the same way we're not going to force a man to put on tefillin every day, right? you can't go to secular court and say, my husband doesn't wear tefillin. You know, <laughs> a judge is going to say that's not our business. That's separation of church and state. So some courts have said ksuvah is the same thing. It's a religious thing, and we're not going to make a man do a religious thing. The truth is, I think that's not quite logical, because the ksuba, it's true, the ksuba is part of a religious ceremony, but the ksuba is a regular contract. I promise to pay my wife a certain amount of money. Why can't it? What's the difference? I mean, if we'd write it in English and call it contract, it would be a contract. All right, but nevertheless, uh, we're not here to discuss the secular law so much, but some courts do take the position that a ketubah is not enforceable as a contract because it is a religious obligation and uh, they say that under the First Amendment of the Constitution, the requirement of separation of church and state, at least in the United States, we don't enforce it. Other courts, secular courts, secular courts, have actually said, is a contract, right? Why not? Uh, Just because... It was done as part of a religious ceremony. It's a regular contract. We're just enforcing the contract. And then the court would have a trial as to how much is silver worth and and all those other things. Okay, so that's a question of secular court. But what about Baston? Can a woman go to Baston? Go to Baston and say, you know, a Jewish religious court and say, I want my husband to pay the k'suvah, and if he doesn't pay the k'suvah, I want to enforce the lien. The halach is, of course, she could. That's exactly what a ksuba is. A ksuba, whether the ksuba is a contractual obligation is a secular question. But there's no question; it's a religious obligation, and if it is, uh, it can be enforced. However, in the real world, in the real world, it is relatively uncommon. You know, even in Yerushalayim, even in Eretz Yisrael, it's relatively uncommon. Not unheard of, but it's relatively uncommon that a woman actually enforces the ksuba because usually what husband and wife do when they get divorced is they draw up with lawyers a more specific property division of everything, and that will usually say that this will replace the ksuba. This is in lieu of the ksuba, which they're allowed to do, they're allowed to make those types of deals. Because in monetary matters, not in in monetary matters, the halacha itself gives them the flexibility to, you know, create different obligations. So you're not going to see so many cases. If you if you were to be a judge in a base, then you're not going to see so many cases where a woman says, "I want to collect my Ksuva But if the husband has not agreed to any type of property agreements. Then yeah, the kesuba is going to be a very good backup for a woman uh, to be able to enforce her her rights. Okay, that's the uh, that's the idea of the um, of the uh, Now let me just mention again. I don't want to go over too many details, but I, I think it's helpful because you know most people don't even know. and I'm including the chassidim who we'll get married. Most people don't even know what the kesuba contains. And uh, I think it's helpful just to know what it is, you know. Hopefully uh, all of you are going to get married uh, sooner or later, hopefully sooner. Uh, So you need to know what your rights are under the ksuba, what the Kisuvah gives you, etc., why it's important uh, and and the like. Um, Now, two things. First of all, in Israel, I don't know if you ever noticed this, When a person gets married, a man and a woman get married, uh, a copy of the kesuvah signed by the witnesses must be sent to the rabbanuts to be kept in their files. So, in a sense, every kesuvah is executed in duplicate. There's the kesuvah that you're going to keep in your house or a safe deposit box, and then there's a kesuvah that will be in the files of the Israeli chief rabbi. Now, that's a very helpful thing actually, because that actually means that even if you lost your kasuva, you don't have to run around in the middle of the night to get a replacement kasuva because there's already a kasuva on file. So that actually helps you, that that avoids the problem of trying to find, you know, witnesses and and the and like. However, this only works if the Kava on file is itself a kosher kasuba that was signed by witnesses. Now let me explain what sometimes happens. What sometimes happens is the rabbi again, I, I'll plead guilty myself. <laughs> um, the rabbi that's Masadir Kedushin has to send this copy of the kesuva to the rabbinate. But by the time he gets around to it, the witnesses, you know, maybe the day after the wedding, the witnesses aren't there anymore. So I simply say, I just say, the witnesses are, were, you know, Ruven, Ben Yaakov, etc. In other words, the witnesses didn't sign, I just signed who they were. Now, that's a fine record, it it tells me who they were, but that's not a kosher ksuga because the actual witnesses didn't sign that document. So in such a situation... The Rabbanut has a record of the k'suvah, but because it's not a kosher k'suvah, if the chassan and the kala ever lose their original document, they're going to have to do a k'suvah di'eched. In other words, the the statement that I made that the Rabbanut's copy will be enough is only if the actual witnesses sign that copy. So, you know, if the rabbi remembers at the wedding to get them to sign it, then everything's fine, but as I say, sometimes uh, the rabbi doesn't get to it till the day after. Uh, and then be aware that it may not be, uh, you know, you, you'll need a ksuba di'irchasa in the event that you lose it. Now, another thing, now this is only Minog, but it's an interesting uh, difference in minag. Uh Witnesses have to sign the ksuba. And right? a ksuba has to be signed by two witnesses. And like all rules of witnesses, the witnesses. Uh, well you have to have two of them they cannot be related to the chassan or the kala they cannot be related to each other they must be Jewish they must be above bar mitzvah they must be men and most importantly they must be halachically observant uh, meaning they must be Shomer Shabbos and the like uh, if Anyone, either one of those witnesses does not qualify for that, then the ketubah is invalid, and a new kasuba has to be written. Now, technically, by the way, I don't want to get the new kasuba, in that case, is not called a kasuba that was lost, because you never had a good kasuba. That's called a kasuba, which has a mistake. In other words, it's a, it's, it's, it's a slightly different text. text.Ksuba that is lost is when you had a kosher kasuba that was lost. Here, you had a kesuba that was no good to begin with, so it has to be rectified with a different text. But again, the concept is is more or less the same. Now, when is the kisuvah signed? So here is something very, very interesting, which is a big difference between uh, chutzla aretz and Eritisra. Yisrael. In chutzla aretz, the ketubah is signed at what's called the chassan's tish, or the kabbalah's panim, right? We have prior to the chuppah, right? So the kala is in one room with uh, her friends, and the chassan is in another room uh, with his friends. Uh, The better food is usually in the kala's room, so (laughs) that's why the men are always gravitating uh, to the kala's room for the smorgasbord or whatever it would be. Uh, and this is called, where the chassan is, it's called the chassan's tish, that's either the chassan's table, or kabbalat's panim, you know, the reception, and the kallah side, it's also called kabbalat's panim, uh, whatever it would be. So, and then, of course, at the end of that is the badek and the veiling. Mm-hmm. So typically, in America, actually, in, in, actually the whole world except for Israel, the kesuvah is signed at the kabbalat's panim, before the bedeken, right before the The last thing that's done before the veiling of the Kala is the witnesses sign the kisuba. Now, So, so the Kesuvah will be read under the Chuppah, it will be read under the Chuppah, but it will be signed at the Kabbalah's Panim before the Chuppah. In Eretz Yisrael, they do it differently. In Eretz Yisrael, they actually sign the Kesuvah under the Chuppah itself, which is kind of awkward. Uh, meaning what happens is that after the chassan gives the kala the ring, and then the k'suvah is dead, so the rabbi who's reading the ksuba will read like up to the witnesses' names. They haven't signed yet. Then he will stop. The witnesses will sign the ksuva under the chuppah. Then the rabbi will read the names. Um, it's a little awkward because there may not be a place to sign. I mean, you're under the chuppah. There's, there's not necessarily a table there. So sometimes they put the kesuvah on the other witnesses' back. So, you know, I'll, I'll put it on the witness's back. I'll sign it. Then he'll put it on my back. And he'll sign it. You know, etc. Where's that
1: again?
0: Huh? No, no, Eretz Yisrael, Eretz, Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael. Now, the truth of the matter is, lot although it's inconvenient, the Eretz Yisrael minug conceptually makes a lot of sense and the reason is I had already told you that the ketubah is an obligation of nisuin, not erusin remember marriage used to be in those two stages now the uh, nisuin starts with the sheva bracha, so so in reality therefore, you're signing the ketubah right before the nisuin ceremony as opposed to the minak, you're signing the ketubah before the erusin ceremony so technically it is earlier than it should be, but still that is been, uh, that, you know, that's the, uh, the normal custom. Now what often happens is that um, you know, Americans like to impose their minhagim wherever they go, so as a result, a lot of weddings in Eretz Yisrael follow the American custom now. They just do it. So you'll see the Ksuva signed at the Kabbalah in, but technically that is not... Uh, correct, the Minhag of Eretz Yisrael is to sign the Ksubah under the, under the chuppah. Also another difference, which is not a halachic difference, but it's an, another interesting little difference, is we know the custom. In fact, this is a custom that even people... It's a funny thing how certain minhagim, which are halachically not as important as other things, assume a huge importance. You know, everybody knows you're supposed to break a glass under the chuppah. But you know... And that is, that, is, that is, of course, the minog of the Jewish people. That, sh- that should be followed. But, you know, that's not halachically mandatory as part of the marriage ceremony. The marriage is kosher, even if you didn't break a glass. Uh, but it's funny, this is such a well-known custom that even when people get intermarried, God forbid, they say they want to have something Jewish in the ceremony, so they want to break a glass. Actually, the truth of the matter is, Based on the reason for breaking a glass, it's actually very appropriate to break a glass at an, <laughs> at an intermarriage.
1: <laughs> it
0: actually makes a lot of sense. But okay, uh, so I shouldn't criticize, it, uh, criticize that. But the basis of breaking a glass is from a story in the Gomorrah that one time a wedding, people were getting uh, inebriated, getting a little drunk and fooling around, and a rabbi took an expensive glass goblet This was class at that time was very expensive, and smashed it, and everybody was was shocked by it. And the idea was he wanted people to realize that when we live in a world of gullus, we live in a world of suffering, we live in a world of the concealment of Hashem. It is not even in our happiest moments we have to remember Yerushalayim. We have to remember that the world is still incomplete until Mashiach and Geula comes. So it's an amazing thing. At the moment of a great, great simcha, we have to remember this. So the breaking of the glass is based on the idea, and of course, the chasn and the Kala are supposed to say together, im from David HaMelech, from Tehillim, im eshkacheich Yerushalayim, tishkach yimini, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may I forget the use of my right hands, tidvat l'shoni l'sheki, may my tongue Cleave unto my palate, im lo If I don't remember you, im loy If I don't put Yerushalayim above my highest joy, and you know there are some beautiful nigunim to that are played as well. So typically, what uh, in America what you are going to see is that this will be right after the Sheva Brachas, meaning to say uh, they're going to read the Ksuvah. They'll recite Sheva Brachos under the Chuppah, which is b- the beginning of Nesuit, and then, you know, the Chassan will, st- uh, will step on the glass, uh, we will we'll say, and we'll step on the glass, and then everybody explodes with Oh Shama, the singing and the dancing and the craziness, and, 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 and the light. Now, in Eretz Israel it's a little different. And once again, it makes a lot of sense they will break the glass before the Sheva They'll read the Kisuvah. I'm sorry, no, even before the Kisuvah, after the Yersin, after the ring ceremony. Break the glass and then read the Kisuvah and then say Sheva Now, it really doesn't make a difference where you do it. In other words, this is not something that is a halakhic disagreement. But I just want to point out why the Eret Israel Minug makes a lot of sense. Many people point out that there's something incongruous. You know, we break the glass at the end of Shavu Brachas, and that's, that's almost a sign for people to start dancing and, you know, screaming in a very... Like, it's like play ball, you know. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it, that defeats the purpose, because the purpose of breaking the glass is like a moment of silence, a moment of reflection a moment of yearning for Mashiach. But if you're doing it exactly when the dancing is going to start, you're kind of defeating the purpose. So the way they do it in Eretz Yisrael, they break the glass before they even meet the Ksumah. So there's no, like, there's no singing or dancing at that point. So it's just, we broke the glass, it's something to think about and the like. Now again, as I say, halachically, um, there's no hak padad, there's no insistence that it be done here or there but uh, the minnag of Eretz Israel is a little different and once again you will commonly see at American weddings in Israel that they do the American way uh, no matter what, in fact, a lot of things that way, so sometimes it's just because of ignorance you know the minnag of Eretz Israel is a very a very strange mina that children do not escort the coffin of their parents to the burial so uh, children will of course come to the levaya. And when they carry the Aro to the grave, the children do not follow the Aro, meaning they can come before or after, but they don't, they don't follow the... Fu- they're not part of the funeral procession to the grave. Now, this is very, very foreign uh, to an American, or really to, to, to most people who are, who are not na- native Eretz Israel, well, because obviously a, a child wants to accompany their parents, but the old minigavaretasol was not, and it's based on a kab- Kabbalistic idea. I mean, the Kabbalistic idea basically is that um, when people do serious averos, they create children, demonic children. These are like, you know, and the averos are like children. So the concept is, if you let some kids go, you've got to let all the kids go. So <laughs> since we don't want those sinful kids to follow, so kids don't go at all. That's the that's the of Eretz Israel that uh, children do not escort uh, the body to the grave, but as I say uh, in America uh, certainly that is done, and therefore even in Eretz Israel they often do it, and the Chavruta Kadisha does not object because they understand that emotionally there's a strong a strong connection, right? So there's a lot of things. In fact, I'll mention another thing again, you know, nothing to do with anything we're talking about. Uh, the concept of the early Shabbos minyan, which is yeah, I, don't, I don't know if Chabad has, has what what Chabad has on that, but in, but in most uh, Orthodox synagogues in America uh, during the summer, in particular, an early Shabbos minion is very ubiquitous. Uh, so let's say it's the summer, so Shabbos starts you know 8 p.m. Uh, that's when it gets started, or even 8:30 p.m. And if you have younger children, so by the time you get home and eat, it's going to be 9:30, and the kids uh, will have to go to sleep or whatever it is. So as a result, based on the principle of accepting Shabbos early, which indeed you can always do that, you can accept Shabbos early, so they'll make what's called early Shabbos at 6 p.m., and they'll make their Shabbos meal. They'll eat like 6.30 or 7, and that's called early Shabbos. Again, during the winter, I don't think anyone does an early Shabbos. <laughs> Shabbos is early enough, but in the summer, a lot of people like to do early Shabbos. So it's interesting that the Minag of Eret was not to make Kiddush before dark. You could certainly make an early Shabbos in you can daven and light candles and accept Shabbos early. But you wouldn't sit down and make Kiddush till it was dark. The Kiddush had to wait, which of course defeats the whole purpose of early Shabbos. People make early Shabbos not because they want to daven early, they make early Shabbos because they want to eat early. And yet the minnegeveret Israel was that they did not eat early. And yet, the pushy Americans, mm-hmm. I used to be a pushy American myself, mm-hmm. the pushy Americans come and they want to start all of their customs. So now I know in Ramat Yishkol, other neighborhoods now, we have the early American Friday night Shabbos. And once again, that, is, that was not the minug of, of, of Eretz Yisrael. So there's a lot of different things. I'll t- but I'll tell you something, you know, it's, it's fascinating that this notion of bringing Chutz Laretz ben to Eretz Yisrael the Bal Hamor, Rav Zerachih Alebi, who's one of the great, great, great Rishonim from the uh, 1200s, very early, actually claims that the original custom of Eretz Yisrael was that Rosh Hashanah was one day, just like all the other holidays, and it was the French rabbis who came who brought their golos minig of two days of Rosh Hashanah. He actually claims that Rosh Hashanah should be one day in Israel, consistent with Sukkos and Pesach and Shavuos and everything else. Yeah. So uh, that's pretty... Again, the Ramban, I mean, most people argue with him. They say Rosh Hashanah was always two days in Israel. But, but he took the position that this was, uh, this was a transplant from Chutz uh which uh, should not have uh, taken root and the like. Okay? So this is kind of uh, what you need to know about uh, the Kesuvah and some of the Chilukim between Eretz Yisrael and Chutz Laaretz. Now, uh, just a little bit of a note between uh, Ashkenazi and Sephardi Kesuvos. Uh, a few things. First of all, I think I had mentioned that many Sfardic Kesuvos actually do convert the Zuz and the Zakuk currencies to contemporary amounts. So you might hear a million shekel or something like that, (coughs) uh, which makes it a little easier. But another thing that's very interesting, in a Svarty Kisuba, not everyone, but sometimes you'll see this, it'll say something like, I, the chassan, hereby swear, by Hashem's name, that I will not marry another wife in addition to this wife, and if I do so, I will immediately divorce wife number one, the one that he's marrying now, and give her a kisuvah of a million shekels, something like that. Now, what's, what's going on? Why is that oath in the kisuvah? So here we have to remember that Ashkenazim have a certain thing that Sephardim don't have, and this is called the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom. Let's go back to this. Rabbeinu Gershom was the leader He was the greatest rabbi of Ashkenazic Jewry in the ten hundreds. Just to give you a sense of when he lived, he was the rebbe of the rebbe of Rashi. So he was two generations before even Rashi. And Rabbeinu Gershom's authority is something that we can't really fully comprehend. It was over the whole Ashkenazi population. Poland, Germany, Russia. They looked to Rabbeinu Gershom as the authority. Uh, He goes by the full name, Rabbeinu Gershom, Moor Hagola, the light of the exile. And Rabbeinu Gershom made a few takanos, made a few rules that were binding by Ashkenazic Jews because they accepted it upon him. Among them was (laughs) he abolished or he prohibited the practice of polygamy. Under Torah law, It is permitted for a man to have more than one wife. Now, it was never common. I think it's very, very clear. It was absolutely never common. Now, in the Chumash, we have a few examples. Yaakov of of course, is the best example. Uh, But you don't find uh, rabbis of the Talmud having more than one wife. So it was permitted. It was never encouraged. But it was permitted. Rabbeinu Gershom bans Ashkenazic Jews from marrying two wives. Okay, so this is called a cheirim, that anyone that violates this is put into excommunication. The cheirim of Rabbeinu Gershom. That's the first takana he made. The second takana he made was another rule, a man cannot divorce a woman against her will. Under Torah law, a man could divorce his wife even if she didn't want it. According to Rabbeinu Gershom, you need the consent of the woman as well. So that actually means get, which we'll talk about get in a lot of detail, get requires mutual consent. A husband cannot just do it to his wife. And the third thing that he made is nothing to do with this. He made a takana that it's prohibited to read somebody's mail. (laughs) That uh, if you open up somebody's letters, etc., and you read uh, their mail... You are guilty of a very serious sin. And there's a whole machlokas. Does that apply to email? Does that apply to taxes? <laughs> How do you apply it to modern communications? But this is Dr. Rabbeinu Gershom. So it turns out that ever since the 10 hundreds, Ashkenazic Jews were not allowed to practice polygamy. Now, some say the following, interestingly enough, that Rabbeinu Gershom's original ban was only supposed to last until the year 5000. And it was going to expire in the year 5000, which would mean that for the past 784 years, polygamy theoretically would be mutter, but Rav Yosef Cairo reassures us that they renewed it. It, got, it did get renewed, so it, you, can't, you can't use the original expiration date. Now, what's interesting is, only Ashkenazim accepted Rabbeinu Gershom's takanos. Sfardim did not accept Rabbeinu Gershom Stakhanos, which means Sfardim were halachically permitted to engage in polygamy. If you're a Sfardim, you were allowed to, not you, but a man would be allowed to have more than one wife. But, uh, but obviously, many fathers-in-law didn't want their daughter to be one of many wives. So essentially, what they did was they, you might call it they privatized Rabbeinu Gershom's chayim by making it an oath of the Ksuba so that's why so an Ashkenazi Ksuba doesn't have to have that clause because an Ashkenazi is not allowed to marry anyway because of chayim or Rabbeinu Gershom but for Svardim the Chosun would accept in the Ksuba that he will not marry another another wife uh, and if he does there will be an extreme financial penalty so you can call it a privatization of the chair of Rabbeinu Gershom. Interestingly, this brings up a very, very interesting point. Um, the, so, Svartim don't have the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom, right? That's one thing. There's another thing that differentiates them as well. Again, I'm digressing, but just want to deal with the Ashkenaz Svart divide. And that is, we may have discussed it, I don't remember, uh, the mitzvah of Yibum, levirate marriage. What, what is that again? The Torah says, if a man dies without children without children or even if there were children but they predeceased the man's death there is a mitzvah on his brother to marry the widow that's called yibam in order to hopefully have a child that will perpetuate the neshama and the memory of the brother who died. In fact, in a Kabbalistic way, the child that the brother has from the widow is not his child. It's considered almost as if it's the child of the one who died. This is called the mitzvah of Yibam. Now, the Torah then says, if he doesn't want or she doesn't want, either one, either one. If he doesn't want, or she doesn't want, there's a ceremony that releases her from the Yibam obligation, and the ceremony is called Chalitza. Chalitza is removal of a shoe. And it's a a rare ceremony, you don't get to see it that much. I myself only saw one in my life, Actually, I didn't even see it. I was in a crowd of 500 people, but I was in a room of chalitza once in my life. Uh, The man, meaning the the brother, the brother of the deceased, wears like a special boot, like a Viking boot, all sorts of things, and she pulls off the boot. She removes it from his foot. She spits, not in his face, she spits in front of him. It doesn't mean in his face. And... um, She says, she says in Hebrew, so shall be done to the man who does not want to rebuild his brother's home. And she does this in front of a baston, and this is very unusual. A normal baston are three rabbis. The baston of Chalitza are five rabbis. It's very, very, the whole ceremony is an unusual ceremony. In front of five rabbis. And they uh, proclaim chalutz hanao, meaning his, uh, his uh, foot, uh, the shoe has been removed from his foot, chalutz hanao, chalutz hanao. At that point, she is now freed from any yibum obligation and she can marry anybody she wants. Until she has chalitza, she cannot marry anyone else. In other words, chalitza for yibum is like get for marriage. The same way a woman without a get cannot get married, a woman without chalitza cannot get married. That's party? No, no, this is true for everybody. This is is the Torah. I didn't tell you Ashkenazim and Svarim. This is the Torah. Okay. So now, so this is all in the Torah. So now, let me tell you a very interesting difference between Ashkenazim and Svardim. Svardim still practice it exactly as the Torah says. Meaning, if the brother wants to marry the widow and the widow wants to marry the brother, they do ibub. And only if either one doesn't want, will they do chalitza. Meaning, chalitza is the second best. Yibum is the best. Ashkenazim have a strange minak. Ashkenazim do not practice yibum at all. Meaning, even if the man is single and he's perfectly happy to marry his sister-in-law, and even if she wants to, they both want to do it, Ashkenazim do not allow the practice of Yibam. We go straight to chalitza. so we don't even give them a choice. Now, I have to admit, it makes no sense. Why is she spitting at the guy? If the, I mean, if the guy is willing, you know, why is he being criticized? Okay, that's a good question. But the Ramah, who is the source of Ashkenazic practice, actually records the tradition that Ashkenazim do not do Yibam today, And the reason is a little difficult, and that is, the concept is marrying your brother's wife is essentially incestuous, except if you're doing it totally for the mitzvah. So if I do it totally for the mitzvah of Yibam, it gets elevated to a holy act. But today there was a feeling that We're not capable of doing something totally for the mitzvah, and therefore we we consider yibam to be a sin. It's very similar, by the way. I'll give you an uh, an interesting Chabad example, which is a quite controversial example. Nothing to do with this, but it's a similar line of reasoning. You know, one of the most controversial minhagim of Chabad, which may not affect a lot of people, but for those who practice it, it's very, very serious, is that Chabad has a shita of not sleeping in the sukkah. No, according to the Mishnah and the Gemara, not only should you eat in the sukkah, but you should sleep in the sukkah. Now, a lot of people don't sleep in the sukkah because of climate or whatever it is, but as far as the halacha is concerned, sleeping in the sukkah is as important as eating in the sukkah. Chabad has a shita that they don't sleep in the sukkah. Now, again, it may not affect a lot of people because a lot of regular Orthodox Jews don't sleep in the sukkah, but but for those who keep the halacha... This is one of their big, big uh, questions on Chabad. In fact, on YouTube, uh, the Rebbe was giving uh, dollars out, you know, so people, are, you know, everyone gets like five seconds, but there was a rabbi from B'nai Brak <laughs> so you know, he, he asked the Rebbe the question about, you know, how come, you know, I just got to ask the Rebbe about Chabad not sleeping in the sukkah. The Rebbe stopped the line for 25 minutes.
1: <laughs>
0: how many people debating this, discussing this, he actually, he actually got quite upset you know, uh, and, and, and the like. But this, it probably was the longest dollars, you know, stock that uh, in history. Um, so one of the reasons, again, I'm not giving you a complete analysis of this, but one of the reasons is that the sukkah is holy and only when you're a holy person who's able to, like, serve Hashem even when you're sleeping is it proper to sleep in the sukkah. But when you're more animalistic, so to speak, uh, it's better not to sleep in the yeah I'm not going to evaluate that reasoning. It's not for me to do that. But it's a similar reasoning to what the Ramah is saying about yibam. That even though yibam is a mitzvah, but because it has some element of incestuousness to it, if your kavanos, if the man's kavanos is not 100%, it shouldn't be done. So to this very day, svardim, do practice yibam, Ashkenazim, do not practice Yibam. By the way, let me emphasize one, one other thing. If a man died with children, it is absolutely the case that the brother cannot marry the widow, meaning that actually is incest, and that's true for, that's under the Torah law, okay? So marrying a brother's widow is indeed incestuous if it's not a Yibam case. Okay, it's absolutely forbidden. Don't practice polygamy like the modern days, though? No, no. So, uh, so, so I'll get this. So Svartim so, so, so are allowed to practice polygamy. Now, Nowadays? So now I'll I'll, just, I'll, I'll try it. I'll, I'll, let me, I'll address that right now. Yeah, I'll address that right now. So what happened was this. Um, in 1947-48, when the State of Israel was being set up, so they created two chief rabbinates. They created a chief rabbinate for Ashkenazim. And they created a chief rabbinate for Svartim. Right to this day, there are two Rav HaRashis. Uh, the Ashkenazic Rav right now is Rabbi David Lau, and the Svartic Rav is Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef. Actually, it's very interesting. Both of their fathers were chief rabbis.
1: Uh,
0: rabbi David Lau's father, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, was an Ashkenazic chief rabbi, and Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef's father was, of course, Ravo Yitzhak Yosef, who was a very, very famous uh, chief rabbi. So it's uh, an interesting father-son Succession. With Rabbi Lau, it's even more interesting because when his father retired from the chief rabbinate, he took a job as being chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. So Rabbi Lau Sr. technically works for his uh, son because Rabbi Lau Jr. is the chief rabbi and Rabbi Lau Sr., who had been chief rabbi, is now just chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, you know, and, and the like. So that's interesting. But be it as it may, uh, in, back in uh, 1948, when they were setting up the chief rabbinates. And in those days, the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi was Rabbi Herzog, who is the grandfather of the president of Israel. In fact, the same name, Yitzhak Herzog. And the Swardi chief rabbi was Rav Meir Ben-Zion Uziel. So Rav Uziel and Rav Herzog had a conference in which they wanted to make an agreement where they, w- where they would eliminate some of the differences in Ashkenazim and Svardham so there could be more achdus. And in that Jose in that agreement, Svardham agreed to give up Yibam and they agreed on the ban of polygamy. Okay. Which means based on the rabbinate's decision, Since 1948, Svardim in Israel uh, were not allowed to practice polygamy, nor were they allowed to practice yibum. The exception was people were grandfathered in if they came with multiple wives. So in in the early 50s, there were still elderly Yemenite Jews who came to Israel, and they had more than one wife. They were allowed to keep their multiple wives, because they had already married them, but no new polygamy was permitted. I'm not sure if there's anybody around uh, who still does that. Now, what's interesting is, though, so so if you're asking me the question, can a swarty today practice polygamy in Israel, the answer is no. Can a swarty today practice Yibum in Israel, the answer is no. But, but, Ravavadu Yosef, who became the chief rabbi in the 70s, actually took the position that Rav Meir Uziel did not have the right to give up Sephardic customs. So Rav Mathew Yosef considered that agreement to be invalid, and he poskined that Spartan could do Yibam. He didn't say polygamy, although the logic of his remarks should apply to polygamy as well. So all I can tell you is, it's, it's actually a machlokus among Sephardi Poskin. Are they bound by the agreement of nineteen forty forty eight? Okay, so I don't know. I don't know what the practice is. I did hear about one right, guy, but it's, I think I think he's kind of crazy, um, who took took another wife. I mean, like in Harnoff, it's it's kind of it's a bit of a notorious <laughs> little scandal uh, in Harnof. I mean, he's a front person. I, you know, he just took another wife, and uh, people are very very concerned about that those types of practices, but.
1: But Yemenites are not going according to any of the customs. again? Yemeni- Yemenites are not going according right to the Ashkenazi customs, and they are not going according right to the Sephardic customs. So they have
0: their own. That's system. correct. So, um, on the other we hand, can't. keep in mind, uh, I don't, again, I don't know what the Yemenite community right, the, 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 the... Because Hube there, Hube there is no Yemenite chief rabbi. I mean, there is no yeah, yeah. Israeli Yemenite chief rabbi. Right, yeah. uh, the Israeli government subsumed them yeah. under Sephardim, even though you're correct. Uh, Taimanim are not Svardim, They are very, very. Uh, they are. They are a third group. Really, we have Ashkenazim, Svardim, Taimanim. Now, Ashkenazim includes many people: Germans, Hungarians, Poles, Russians, yeah. Americans, British, and Svardim includes many people: Moroccans, Syrian, um, Algeria, etc. But Taiman is not yeah, within Sfaridim. Taman is all very.
1: Yeah.
0: is very, very unique. Very old. In fact, uh, many say if you want to know what Hebrew sounded how, how did Moshe Rabbeinu speak Hebrew? He didn't speak Ashkenazi or Svarti. He spoke like Teman. Uh, Tamani is probably the closest pronunciation to what Hebrew sounded like in the time of Matan Torah itself. You're right, you're right. So, so I honestly don't know what everybody is doing, but you're, you're right. Temanim are a, uh, are a group. Uh, in and of themselves in many, many ways. Very, very unique. Okay, uh, yeah. What about like Indian Jews or Iraqi Jews? Like, Where do they belong? Well, well uh, an Iraqi Jew is a Spardi. Again, Iraq is a classic. In fact, Ravad Yosef himself, his family was Iraq, Iraqi. Oh, so
1: he's not Mizrahi? Or?
0: Uh, well, Mizrahi, yeah, Mizrahi. Yeah. Well, when I say Sephardim, I, I mean, basically, he do Mizrahi. Mizrahi Jews are Sephardim. Oh, okay. Now, the problem with Indian Jews is slightly different because it depends what you mean by an Indian Jew. Uh, if you're talking about people who are indigenous, meaning their, their place of origin is India, there is some question whether they are Jewish. They're, they're similar to the Ethiopian Jewish population, in which over the years their Jewish status has not been, like they call it B'nai Menashe, uh, has not been fully verified and the rabbinate will require a conversion. Mm-hmm. See, so you can't really combine Iraqi Jews, Indian Jews, they're, they're two very different situations. Iraqi Jews are for sure Jews, and their customs uh, are Sephardic, are Spardic customs. Uh, Indian Jews, Chinese Jews uh, are halakhically questionable. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, well, once again, because they were cut off, they were so isolated from mainstream Jewish communities that over the years uh, they, they may not have followed all the halachos, they may have intermarried over the years. So even though they could undoubtedly trace some Jewish blood in their background, but we're just not sure exactly of their lineage. I mean, this was the issue with the Ethiopian Jews. Again, Ethiopian Jews uh, can, uh, can show descent from the tribe of Dad, from the Ten Tribes, but they were so separated from the rest of the Jewish world for hundreds and hundreds of years that, you know, questions arise at some point, uh, and that's why uh, the normal rule would be that an Ethiopian Jew would have to convert in order to be able to marry a Jew, another Jewish person in the state of Israel. This is called Gior chumra This is conversion uh, to be uh, on the strict side, which we do in a lot of, a lot of those cases. Okay, so that's the idea of, of Yibam, some differences between Ashkenazim and, and Svardim uh, in the Jewish, in the Jewish marriage, uh, marriage ceremony. Okay, so that's kind of uh, what uh, you need to, to know about uh, marriage. Uh, so now we're, we'll start our little discussion about divorce, right? So we're skipping over <laughs> all the years in between, all the happy years in between. Uh, but uh, the same way that uh, there's a mitzvah of marriage. There actually is a procedure in the Torah uh, about divorce. And uh, we know that uh, a woman can only be divorced in only one way, that is by her receiving a document in her hands. And the document is a document of divorce. And the term for a document of divorce is called get. Gimmel, Tess. Now, the thing that's interesting about get, I know when you see the word get, you think about the, uh, the, ta- the uh, flat, uh, all the taxis are, you know, get. No. It's a certain app for, to get a cab. But uh, I, I'm referring to the, the original usage of get. Uh, the word get actually does not mean a divorce. The word get means a document. So, for example, if you borrow money and you sign an IOU, we can call that a get as well. The word get just means a legal document, but increasingly, over the centuries, it no longer is used in the broader sense, and almost always, when you see the word get, it refers to the bill of divorce, the document of divorce. Now, the Ville-Legonde says a fascinating observation. Why do we use the word get to describe a divorce? So he says the following: only the Vilna Gaon could, could figure this out. The Vilna Gan says because Gimel and Tess are the only two letters that never appear next to each other in the whole Chumash. <laughs> Meaning, the word get is not in the Chumash. The word get itself is not in the Chumash. That every other possible pair of letters aleph bays aleph gimel aleph dalet Beis... you know every single pair of letters will appear in some word somewhere the only two letters that never appear together are gimel and Tuff. now presumably there are deep kabbalistic reasons for that i don't know what they are but the vilnagun says given that reality Gimel and Tuff represent the epitome of separation. And that's why the word get is to, you know, indicate divorce. Wait, it's test
1: or not
0: tough? Huh? Test,
1: Oh, you said t- t- No, Tets. I'm sorry,
0: Gimel, Tet. Yeah, okay. Gimel, Tet. Oh, did I say tough? I'm sorry, okay. Yeah. Gimel, Tet. Get. So again, get is not in the Torah. If, if get would be in the Torah, that would destroy the Vilna Gaon's analysis. But the point is, there is no combination of Gimel and tuff. In the uh, in the in the Torah, now Tosos gives another interesting point. The custom—it's not a—it's not a, it's not a khiev, but this is the custom—is a get is written in twelve lines. It's a handwritten document in twelve lines. Yud Bez shurot. Now this is a custom. This is not a requirement, but you know, by get we follow these customs very strictly. And Tosos explains the number 12 is also a sign of separation in the following way. We know that the Torah is divided into, into five books. Brashas, Shemos, Ayikra, Bamidber, Devorim. When a safer Torah is written, between the Sevorim, there have to be four blank lines of separation. So between the end of Chumash Brashas and the beginning of Shemos, you have four blank lines to show that it's a new book. So between Brejus and Shemos, you have four lines. Between Shimos and Vayikra, you have another four lines. Between Vayikra and Bamidbor, you have another four lines. You don't need four lines between Bamidbar and Devarim because Devarim is a repetition of the Torah. So you don't need that separation. So how many lines, blank lines of separation do you have in the Sefer Torah? Twelve. Between Breshas and Shemot? Between Shemos and Vayikra? Between Vayikra and Bamidbar? And therefore the number twelve is a symbol of separation that's why the get is twelve lines now the ceremony of get basically means let's first talk about a face to face a get often a get is not face to face but let's assume it's face to face a handwritten document has to be specially written For this divorce, for this couple, and for this divorce. See, think about it, compare this to a kasuva. A kasuva can be bought, it can be pre printed, and you just fill in the blanks of the names. A get is not that way. Every single letter of the get must be written for the divorce of this specific couple. So, if I'm a sofer, I cannot just have like, you know, get forms that I pull out and fill in the names. It has to be handwritten for this couple, and that is called lishma. Lishma means for the sake of this couple, this man, this woman, and uh, the divorce. Now, that means every get has to be written anew every time. Now, just in terms of time, on the average, a get is not a big document, it's only 12 lines. On the average, a get takes around 45 minutes to an hour to write. So we're not, you know, it's not a safer toe right now. We're talking about 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, if there are some mistakes there, sometimes you've got to start again. It may take a little bit longer. Number one. Number two, the get must be extremely exact regarding the names of the man and the woman. This is the longest part of the get ceremony itself. That means, in fact, there's a whole subspecialty in halacha. How do you spell English names in Hebrew letters? Meaning, every single name a person has, has to be used. You. You know, if your name is Shoshana, but you're also Susan, and you're called Susie, so it'll have to say, Shoshana, who is called Susan, who is called Susie, who is called Sue, daughter of Sarah, who is called Sally, who is called Shushi, or whatever it would be. So the baston has to you know, ask you, What are you called? What are your nicknames? What is your... Actually, wouldn't say your mother's name. In other words, I'm I'm sorry. What I just said is not... In other words, it would be, you know, man, son of man, and woman, daughter of man. In other words, the mother's name does not get in there. But the same thing with the father. Uh, The father's name is Avram, who's called Mm -hmm. Avi, who's called Abe. Mm -hmm. You know, who's called George. You know, whatever, whatever it is. So... That takes a lot of time. They have to know every single name. And then it's hard to spell certain names. In, I mean, people do it in wedding invitations all the time, but those are not halachic documents. You know, they'll spell New Jersey, they'll spell whatever they'll spell. But in get, there are a lot of specific rules how you spell things.
1: But in the k'suva, you don't know
0: what's In the k'suva, we're less strict. Some people are strict in the k'suva too, and it's proper to be so. But the k'suva is not going to be puzzle if you didn't get all of those things in there. But for a get, you got to put everything, everything in, and uh, the spellings have to be right as well. Okay, and uh, the basin's going to make sure of that. So, the sofa writes the get. It is signed by two witnesses. The husband is given the get. The husband then physically hands the get to the wife. She is supposed to cup her hands like a V. The get gets dropped into her hands. They don't touch each other. She clasps her hands. She walks four amos with the get. Again, that's the custom. And now she is now divorced. She is now divorced. Um, now, this is a face-to-face get. I'll talk about long-distance getting in a moment. The whole ceremony can be an hour to an hour and a half. Uh, before the husband gives the get, he's asked a bunch of questions. Are you giving this get willingly? Are you forced? He has to say that, you know, he's giving it of his own free will. And she too is going to be asked: are you receiving this get? In other words, both of them have to affirm that they're doing this without duress or compulsion. And then uh, he delivers the get. Now, what's interesting is, as soon as she, you know, clasps her hands and walks for Amos and she's divorced, she actually gives the get back to the bastin. She can't even keep it as a souvenir
1: <laughs>
0: because the bastin keeps it in their records and number one, they mutilate the get to be sure that it's not gonna be used by another couple with the same name, because it has to be lishma. The actual get is kept in the bastin records. She is given a letter signed by the bastin. That she received the get on such and such a day, and by showing this letter, she's allowed to marry. Uh, she does not actually have the get itself; the get is kept in the records of the basin. Now, here's an important point I need to I need to emphasize a little bit. Um, and you know, and God willing, none, none of you should ever, ever, ever uh, know this at all. Um, a get can be a very tra- traumatic traumatic experience. You know, even if the marriage is rotten and even if, you know, the woman is very happy to get out of that marriage. And even if she's the one who wanted the divorce, you know. But still, you know, there's been an investment of energy and investment of time. If there are children, of course, it's even more traumatic. You know, you're worried about about the children. So a get is a very, very emotional time. Now, the other side of the coin is, however, that the get ceremony is not an emotionally comforting ceremony, meaning uh, the actual get ceremony is very cut and dried. The rabbis are not there to be touchy feely. Now, again, some individual rabbis will, will try to be extra sensitive, but I'm just warning, well, I hope it'll never be an actual warning, but I'm just warning people don't expect more out of the get ceremony. Then it's set up to give. It's a very business-like ceremony, meaning all of the issues of counseling and the like have presumably already been already been resolved. This is like the last nail uh, in the car. Well, maybe that's not the right metaphor, but it's kind of the last uh, end of the process. Which means it is important, I think particularly for women, that they should bring a friend along. Technically, they don't have to bring anybody, but the point is, I shouldn't, I shouldn't badmouth rabbis, but but the point is, uh, they're not going to get necessarily a tremendous amount of emotional support. And therefore, they should bring people that can give them emotional support. It's very businesslike. You know, it's almost like you'd think, you know, hey, you know, we're ending a marriage here. This is something, you know, momentous. But it's very matter-of-fact at that point. Okay, so just be aware of it. So perhaps if you have friends that are going through it, you know, you might be asked to kind of... Uh, be a friend who accompanies them. And that's a very, uh, it's a big mitzvah, it's a big chesed to give strength to people in those, in those great uh, difficulties. Now, as I say, the whole ceremony, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that lead up to this based on everything else, but the actual get ceremony can be, um, you know, as I say, a, an hour to an hour and a half or two hours, that's what we're talking about. We're not, we're not talking about a long ceremony, and most of that ceremony will be taken up with, you know, what's your names and identifications and, and how do you spell uh, Charlotte uh, in Hebrew, uh, you know, whatever it would be. Because, you know, as you know, Hebrew does not have certain sounds. Hebrew does not have a soft G. George. George. How do you spell George or Georgiana in Hebrew? So you have to combine Dalet, Zion, Shin, the the Right? so there's all sorts of chachmas about how you spell things says, Mom, you know, this may sound arcane but there are whole books big books written about how you spell all of, these different, all of these different names Okay. now keep in mind obviously that I just described a get where the man and the woman are in the same room and the man gives the woman a get many cases the man and the woman are not going to be in the same room Either because they live in different countries, or maybe it's too emotionally painful to be in the same room. So it's very, very important to know that the laws of get can be fulfilled by the concept of a shaliach. Meaning, the man can make a shaliach, make an agent, to give a get to his wife, or the woman can make an agent. To receive, the agent of the woman can be a man or a woman, (coughs) to receive the get from the husband. Or they both can be a shaliach. You can have shaliach of husband giving a get to shaliach of wife. Okay, so essentially this requires two steps, meaning (coughs) the husband would have to go in front of the (coughs) baston. and appoint a shaliach. So let's take a simple case. Let's say husband is in New York and wife is in Israel. And they decided that they're going to get divorced. But husband is not going to fly to Israel and wife is not going to fly to America. So what does the husband do? Husband must appear before a bastion in New York. Declaring that he wants to divorce his wife, and he is willing to appoint a shaliach. He doesn't even have to name the person, as he's willing to have the basin of Yerushalayim appoint a shaliach on his behalf. So the basin of New York takes that down, forwards that to the basin in Yerushalayim. And the basin of Yerushalayim will will make somebody a shaliach, some guy in the you know maybe one of the rabbis there will be a shaliach to give the get, right? And if she wants a shaliach, she does the same thing. If she wants the get to be given in New York, she can go to the basin of Yerushalayim and say, I, I you know I'm, I want to receive a get through a shaliach, and I agree to the basin of New York appointing a shaliach. Okay, so a lot of getten are given by a shaliach. And this is, so if it's a shaliach of the husband, it is called shaliach laholacha, a shaliach to bring the get. If it's a shaliach of the wife, it is called shaliach lekabala, a shaliach to receive the get. Okay, and this is done. This is an everyday occurrence, uh, and uh, it's done by the two bate den communicating with each other, meaning. One basin will accept the declaration of wanting to have a shaliach, and the other basin will appoint the shaliach when they get the, uh, the authorization. Now, uh, a few things about divorce, and then, then, then I'll end. I, a lot more, I want to talk about prenuptial agreements next week, uh, about that, about get and everything else, which are really important. But let me just mention a few things. Uh, once a woman has a get, she, of course, cannot marry a cohen. That we discussed a long time ago. Okay, that's one thing to be aware of. Uh, Number two, she generally cannot get married for 91 days from the date of the get.
1: Only woman? Huh? You said she,
0: only woman? Only woman, yeah, the man can get married right away. Uh, But she has to wait 91 days to be sure that she's not pregnant. Because again, the assumption is that it takes uh, three months approximately for a pregnancy to be recognized and the fear would be if she would get married uh, less than three months and then have a premature baby after seven months, we wouldn't be sure. Well, we wouldn't be sure. Is it premature from the second guy or is it full-term from the first husband? So we want to be sure that there's no uh, pregnancy there. if
1: they were like in different countries for like three months. Huh? Even if they were apart for three months. Yes, that's
0: a good question. In fact, they probably were separated for a long yeah. time. But the Chachamim basically said that uh, you always have to start counting from the get. So that's ninety-one days. Uh, number three, however, it is permitted if the husband is not a co to remarry his wife. Uh, and the fact is even considered a little bit of a mitzvah if they could reconcile and get remarried again. Uh, you know, the old the old joke. Uh, they were they were bitterly fighting. They got divorced. And then they got remarried uh, like the day after the get. And the rabbi said, how could that be? You had, it's such a bad marriage. They said, well, for a second marriage, this isn't bad. You know? it not the first marriage, second marriage, I can tolerate it. Uh, but it's considered to be a little bit of a mitzvah. But, but... Remember this halacha. If the woman got married to another person and she was widowed or divorced from that other person, she cannot go back to her first husband. This is in the Torah itself. The Torah says, you cannot remarry your divorced wife Once she has been married, now, married means to a Jew, because married and then widowed or divorced from the second person. Part of, I mean, the the Torah doesn't give a reason, but but part of the reason might be that uh, this discourages the first husband from trying to undermine her second marriage by thinking he could get her back. but By telling him he can't get her back, he has no incentive to try to mess up the second marriage. This is called Machser Gruschoso. There's an Isser de Oraisa of a man married. Now, I've noticed this psychologically, a very interesting thing, and, and you can see this a little bit. That men who divorce their wives, again, they, I'm not saying every case, when they hear that their wife, their former wife, is getting remarried, it's often a secondary trauma that hits them. That they hear that. And part of that trauma is because now they know that the prospect of reconciliation has become impossible. You see, until she has that second marriage, the man might think, if this is what he wants, the man might think that reconciliation is possible. Once she stands under the chuppah a second time, there's no halachic way, they can never be married again, even if she's widowed, even if she gets divorced from the second guy. So I've, I've noticed over the years that some men take it very, very hard when their ex-wife gets remarried. By the way, another interesting psychological thought, not, not related to this, is when an ex-spouse dies, you would be, you would be quite surprised how traumatic that is a uh, person got divorced. It was a lousy marriage. They got divorced. And 15 years later, husband dies, or her first wife dies. You know, halachically, the ex-spouse is not a mourner. There's no availus they have to keep. And nobody, you know, they don't sit shiva, and nobody's going to even give them condolences. In fact, you're afraid to. I'm going to bring them home. Sorry about, sorry about hearing your know Because they may be offended. I don't know how they're going to take it. But I can tell you again, again, because I... You know, over the years, I've talked with people in different situations that uh, it, is, it is traumatic because, you know, there is a connection even after a divorce. And if there are children, for sure, for sure, obviously, because you're both parents, even if there are no children, there are connections. And those connections aren't, aren't totally gone. And uh, it's been said that an ex-spouse is an unacknowledged mourner an unacknowledged Avel that nobody even thinks about necessarily. But the Avelis can be very, very, very significant. So the world is a complicated place, you know, even when relationships are toxic and have to get uh, dissolved. There are all sorts of connections that are still there in, in various ways. Okay, um, so we'll continue this next week and uh, you know, have a good tubers it.